Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 109 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Lloyd Traven of Peacetree Farm all about lavender. You'll especially want to hear his thoughts about lavender varieties that will stand up to the coming climate change. The plant profile is on the Stewardia tree, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. This episode, we're joined by Lloyd Traven. He is president of Peace Tree Farm, based in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Lloyd. It's nice to talk to you. Good talking to you. So let's talk a little bit about you and your background, and then some about Peace Tree Farm, and then we're going to talk all about lavender and some of the old things and new things we can learn about lavender. But before we jump into all of that, we're going to ask our question that we ask almost all of our guests, which is, Lloyd, were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb? Real simple and quick answer to that is decidedly no. I was not. <laughs> uh, I grew up. I grew up in a medical family, and that was all I knew that I was going to be a thoracic surgeon when I met a girl and fell head over heels in love with her, and we are still together. And uh, we will be married for 45 years this summer. And the bottom line was she liked plants and I was going to be doing whatever she was doing. And so I left the medical field as quickly as I could, uh, went back to school um, for, for floriculture and went to Cornell University for graduate school and never looked back for a second. Wow. So... That classic Hollywood tale of boy meets girl. <laughs> totally. No question about it. No question. <laughs> and, and so it, it was, but I, I am a scientist by, by vocation. And, and so I have always looked to the technology and the science behind everything that we do. And that was why I, I decided to go to graduate school at Cornell and then worked for a major uh, international seed company before we came to Peace Tree Farm, 1983. Hmm. And let's talk about the girl you fell in love with and sculpted your career around. So Candy is not on this recording. She said you were you were better at the interview portion of the business, but I think she is being modest. She's being very modest. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about her and her background and accomplishments too. So she is a she is the glue that holds it all together. She has protected me for all these years from my most base desires. She has managed the people and the and the financial aspects of the business, but she is also the passion behind it and shows her in, intuition 
of what works, what doesn't. We've been, uh, we're one of the original or one of the oldest herb growers in the country. She demanded that we do that right from day one. And I thought it was the stupidest idea I had ever heard. Uh, I mean, who's going to buy basil? And <laughs> I, I mean, that's how dumb I am when, when you really come down to it. And so I laughed at her and I said, you know, there's 500 pots in a case. What are we going to do with the rest of them? That first year, you know, she said, trust me, the first year we had sold 5,000 herbs. And it's like, okay, that's, that's 20 times what I thought we would sell. There may be something here. And then the next year it was 10,000, then 25,000, 50,000, 100,000. And we're propagating about 1.5 million herbs every year now. Wow. Uh, yeah. So she is, you know, really, really, really that 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 gut feeling of what works and what doesn't. It was very important to us early on. My job is then to figure out the protocols and the techniques and the procedures to make something happen. And now that our son, Alex, is the general manager and second generation in the company, we've become really procedural. Uh, in everything that we do. There has to be a motivation and an execution for everything that we do. Well, I'm glad that he has joined. It's always nice to hear when a family business succeeds and goes on to the next generation, because it's always so sad to hear when the next generation isn't interested. Yes. Yeah, we're real, we're real excited about him. But to, get, to, to fill in a little bit of Candy's background, mm-hmm. um, she learned everything by doing. Uh, she is the, you know, classically hardworking and focused and all of that. When I was going to graduate school at Cornell, she was working as a plant breeder, uh, specifically on potatoes there. They had a very famous potato program there. So uh, we had a pretty, we had a pretty good background of both science and hard-nosed production techniques when we came here. And so the plants you're growing are to the wholesale industry only, correct? You're not selling direct? Correct. We're we're probably 98% uh, wholesale. And there's, uh, as we always say, friends of the family and uh, people who are in industry and and things like that can sometimes be allowed in to buy uh, retail. Uh, we, we take tour groups around and they can buy usually, but we really, really, really try to limit that uh, entirely. You know, we're a wholesale company, wholesale to the trade and to other growers. Hmm. And so the general public though might be familiar with your labels or maybe have seen some of your plants at the Philadelphia Flower Show? Yes. And well, we ship all over the nation. Uh, We have a very distinctive logo that's been the logo since day one and we brand our plants. And the other part of it is that we have several programs that we've created. Uh, you might see the, a brand uh, called Garden Geeks came from us and has really, it's very, it's rare plants, unusual mm-hmm. things, botanical garden type things that uh, are just not generally available. And we've done very well with that. And we have a number of branded lines that we do ourselves. So we are known. Mm-hmm, definitely. And so I wanted to ask about Peace Tree Farm, how you chose the location in Pennsylvania, and maybe can describe a bit of the growing conditions, especially for those people not familiar 
even with the state of Pennsylvania and where you are located in the U.S.? Well, we are we are in southeast Pennsylvania. We are um, about an hour and a half due north of Philadelphia, uh, almost on the Delaware River in what we call bucolic Bucks County, and which is really beautiful. So we're in the Delaware Valley, but we're also just below the Lehigh Valley. It's very rural where we are. We're about equidistant from New York City and Philadelphia. We're like the, the tip of a triangle uh, with those cities. And the beautiful thing is, is while it's you know, really quiet and very rural here, we are within, say, four hours driving distance. I can be in Washington, D.C. in less than four hours. I can be most of the way to Providence and Boston and Hartford in four hours. So we've got, we've got a lot of people who are close to us. So our network of, of retailers is pretty big and pretty exclusive. Uh, it also gives us the wonder of having all of these botanical gardens who have become very avid customers of ours as well. You know, we're zone six. It can get, it can get very cold. It can get, we can get massive snowfall, although the weather certainly is changing. And um, when, when we moved here, I always considered it a zone five or, or at least an easy zone five. I can never keep straight what A and B mean, whether it's A, it's a good or bad. I don't know. <laughs> and um, so I just call it, a, you know, I thought we were in easy zone five. And now I think we're pretty solid six. So, it, you know, we get a lot of rain. You know, it's it's actually in weather wise in the United States. I, I, there's not a lot of places I want to be more than where, right where I am because it does. It's not hot like Arizona. It's not humid like Florida. We generally don't get tornadoes, uh, although we have had some recently. We have abundant rain, cold but not brutal winters like Montana or something like that. Hmm. So it's pretty. It's pretty good. Pretty good growing conditions. We have wonderful water which also for a grower is important. That's nice. And what about the soil composition? Well, we're not growing in the soil outdoors ah. at all. We're strictly greenhouse. I will tell you that we have a lot of clay and a lot of rocks, you know, in our, in our native soils. That's what I've noticed in Bucks County. I think a couple wineries up there I had, had visited and I mm -hmm. said, there's some nice gentle slopes, but the soil looks a, a little rough. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's okay for growing once you've tilled and moved, moved some of the rocks out. You know, we're lucky that we have places where you have rock walls dating from the 16 and 1700s that of course are all native rock that came that were pulled out during uh, uh, people establishing homesteads mm -hmm. i know lloyd every time we're up in that section of pennsylvania i just am so enamored with those rock walls and those homes historic homes made out of the stone and then i have to keep reminding myself there's a reason they're made out of that <laughs> They did not import very much. We, we found it here. So. That was backbreaking work for them to pull that, all that out. So, yeah, I don't envy that part of it. And there's all. a reason why I don't uh, do uh, 
as we call it, uh, soil farming. Exactly. So let's move on to our subject of the podcast, which is lavender. And so you're growing all types of herb, but lavender has become a big specialty. And I would say for the mid-Atlantic area, it's kind of a, I don't want to call it a love-hate plant, but it's a kind of been a lot of difficulty for some people to grow because of our heavy clay soils and because we're not the Mediterranean where it originates from. That That's correct, but there, there have been some changes uh, in the last decade that have really mitigated a lot of those issues, Kathy. You know, so it, it lavender is a viable crop in this area now. And uh, which is a big, big, big change. There was there was nothing in the lavender realm uh, anywhere around here uh, up until then, really. And and now you can go around, and there are actual lavender farms. There's a number of them that I can think of down in Maryland. I know I, I know mm-hmm. a fair number down in Virginia. Um, you know, lots of them in Pennsylvania. Lavender is exploding right now. And of course, we're, you know, we're, we're going along for that ride with everybody. But we would like to think that we're driving a lot of it uh, personally as well. It's, it's because of breeding and it's because of varietal selection and things like that. It's, you know, it, people are not growing your grandmother's lavender mm-hmm. and succeeding. It's all, it's new lavender and new breeding that's changed it all. Yeah. I, I've never heard of an heirloom lavender. <laughs> well, they're, they're there, you know, they're there, but they mm-hmm. don't do well in mm-hmm. this area. So, yeah, you know, Munstead and Hidcoat mm-hmm. and, and Vera and things like that have been around for a long time. Most of those are, uh, those particular cultivars, of course, are English origin, as you can tell by the names, mm-hmm. but they are, you know, worthy lavenders in their day and certainly worthy lavenders in their location, but not not in the mid-Atlantic, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've grown, I've had success with Munstead and Hidcoat on a, you know, kind of sharp uh, slope on my front corner and that's about it i would say for recommendation but yeah i meant for heirloom lavenders i meant for pass along plants that you know you don't you don't see somebody saying oh i got this from my grandmother's farm uh no they might have some of the older varieties but not the actual like a a piece of a peony or some hollyhock seeds that would be passed down from generation to generation. You are definitely not seeing that. It's it's not you know the nice thing for me as a propagation company is is that they're not they're generally not pass along plants. No, and yeah, I find them very difficult to start from seed. So much easier just to buy a little started plant. Yeah. To do it that way, it's not the easiest one to do from that. But maybe we should start with the basics of lavenders and say full sun. And that means, what, six hours, eight hours? So, yeah, the first requirement, well, actually, even before you talk about full sun, drainage is is more than anything else the key mm-hmm. for lavender. It is, but it is a full sun plant. You literally cannot give it too much sun. 
And uh, so you, you know, the perfect location is a south facing slope uh, where it will have, where it will just be burned on all day long. It would love that. You have to think where, and you mentioned it earlier, you have to think where lavender mostly originated. It's not the only place where it comes from. Mm -hmm. It is certainly not native to the United States, but it mostly is Mediterranean in origin. And when you think about the hallmarks of Mediterranean climates, you have, it's hot, it's very sunny, it's dry. The soil has been cultivated for thousands of years and it is now depleted and it's flinty, small pebbles and rocks, crumbly, and it drains really, really, really well. It's not a clay soil or anything like that. And so that doesn't mean it's the only place it can thrive, but it means that if you have those kind of conditions, you should do pretty well with lavender. Like It keeps going back to drainage, 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 and not fertile, rich soil. Mm-hmm. Those are really the, the most key components generally. And if you're following those rules, you're going to be fine. Another thing that really helps is a high pH. Okay, It does not want to be in acidic soils. So if you've got azaleas and rhodes that are doing well, don't grow lavender. And so you're saying, you know, doesn't want humusy, really nice, beautiful soil. Nope. It wants kind of that thin soil. So that would say not to fertilize it. Lightly fertilize it. It is, it is a, there's in the lavender world, there's a lot of what I call conventional wisdom that, that you keep hearing over and over and over again. And they're, you know, I, I they're not really, necessarily true and what they're doing is they're taking part of what's being said and they're isolating what you know certain aspects of it so when when they say a very common thing among new lavender farmers as an example is that you never have to water it and you never have to feed it and i don't know any plant that lives that way and so the keys are what is the nutrition that you're looking for. so the general the general thing is is first of all lavender is what's called a calcareous plant it loves calcium loves it and so calcium and magnesium are both important to it and of course when you have a lot of calcium you generally are driving your ph up so it is a it, it really likes that it's important for the growth of it it does require some nitrogen it's pretty low rates um so you know just uh, you know maybe 20 or 30 pounds to an acre is plenty on the nitrogen it doesn't really matter particularly what type of nitrogen depending on your temperature key component phosphorus Low levels of phosphorus Hmm. are important for lavenders, and they're important for the environment as well, by the way, as you know, with the Chesapeake and all that. And so high levels of phosphorus interfere with the microbial and the mycorrhizae in particular 
in the soil and it will defeat any efforts you make to grow a good crop of lavender. When you say, you know, an NPK fertilizer, a 20-20-20 equal parts of each one is not going to be good for you. The phosphorus will interfere and that level of nitrogen is just too high. So you're looking more at a, and and the numbers are, I'm I'm giving you ratios as opposed to hard numbers, like a 13-2-13 would be a good ratio for lavender feed. And that vocabulary word you mentioned earlier, was it calciferous? Calcareous. Calcareous, there we go. Calcareous, yes. And um, I learned that word from an agronomist who happens to be a lavender farmer, who is my go-to on all lavender uh, nutrition questions squirrel that one away for a future scrabble game (laughs) that's going to be like some the word of the day exactly and so if i'm not a farmer level lavender grower not a whole hillside or acre i just have maybe a handful of plants in a front border Mm -hmm. would i crush up some eggshells or have some maybe calcium that i bought you know just by the weight from a local farmer supply store? Either of those will work as long as mixed in well. Mm-hmm. Um, where you come from, uh, you know, clam and oyster shells work. There's a number of different sources and, you, you know, you have to look at it long term kind of uh, how you want to do that. I'm, I'm generally not a fan of a lot of commercial fertilizers. Um, you know, I think that I think we overfeed in general as a as a country, just way too much fertilizer on lawns and things like that. So if you're going to put a few lavenders out and unless if you unless you know that your soil is is acid, um, you're you're going to be OK. Yeah, I wouldn't fret about it. I wouldn't go crazy about it too much. Bone meal. Uh, for an organic form is very effective. Uh, so a lot of a lot of lavender folks, when they're planting, will mix some bone meal in with their soil. And it's important. Don't just dig a hole, throw bone meal in, and, and jam a plant in it. Work the soil around where that that root ball is going to go. Let's say it's a, a four-inch pot, there a quart or a gallon that you're planting. You, know, you want to go another foot all the way around and loosen that and work that uh, calcium in there. Bone meal is great. The downside to it is that dogs tend to like it and they might dig at it. You know, they can smell it and they enjoy it and all that. Some of your critters, you know, might be attracted to it a little bit. There are other animals out there that can be attracted to the salts as well. Uh, rabbits are one. Deer, of course, is another. It's all lavender's always been considered deer proof. Mm-hmm. That has changed slightly. It is still about as bulletproof a plant as you'll come across. Like I can tell you, the deer don't like it. Uh, which is a huge plus for it, but they will sample it. They they will nibble on it a little bit, especially as they become more compacted into certain terrain and certain territories. You know, they will they won't eat it, but they'll they'll taste it. I always say every new generation 
of Bambi's has to learn. So, you know, you have to take a bite. And then if you only have a bite or two of lavender in your garden, then it's gone. Right. But yeah. So that does bring up pruning timing. So when it doesn't get pruned by baby Bambi, um, what is the best time to cut back the lavender wands if you want to keep the color in the flower? So I know you could probably cut it back any time for pruning for the overall shaping of the plant, but maybe we can talk about that planning and timing as well. Okay, so you, you've actually you've actually brought up a couple of really important points with lavenders here. There are first of all, in terms of blooming, there are certain lavenders that are rebloomers. So a lot of the lavender intermedia, the hybrid lavenders, mm-hmm. tend to rebloom very strongly. Depending on the earliness of a particular cultivar, lavender intermediate tends to be a little bit later blooming. Uh, they're going to really start coming on kind of right now in this area. If you get that first heavy flush, uh, and I'll address when to cut the, the stems, and you cut that plant back thoroughly right after you get that first heavy flush, you will get a strong and sometimes a third uh, bloom cycle. We have seen lavenders bloom consistently, never as good as the first bloom mm-hmm. uh, in June or, or early July, almost up until November sometimes. So you can you can have a pretty good harvest of the intermediates. And gustafolias or the classic English lavenders like Hidcote Munstead and things like that, they are earlier bloomers in general. They tend to have a gigantic flush of harvest and some rebloom, but not a tremendous amount. That that covers the, the cutting of the blooms. The timing of the cutting of the blooms is important as well, depending on your purpose. So if you are cutting to make bunches or wreaths or something like that, you definitely want to wait until the first lowest floret is completely open and then look to harvest, uh, you know, generally within the next five or six days after that, as they start to open along the stem, like a snapdragon would. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to wait till it's fully open because uh, you'll, you won't get, you won't enjoy it very long. If you're cutting for fresh flowers, then you want to wait until they're a little bit more open and uh, don't dunk them deeply in water. You just need a little bit of water to keep them turgid. If you're looking for the buds, so if you're making sachets, if you're making soaps, if you're doing a culinary use, um, then generally you want to get the buds much tighter. They will have their highest oil content when they're tight. It's a little bit different than other flowers. So, you know, and and there are some online sources that will show you examples of of these different cutting times. Equally important, Kathy, on lavender is maintenance of the plant. They definitely will be enhanced and much, much, much higher quality, easier to maintain and last a lot longer when you prune the plants 
uh, annually and at the proper time. Lavender intermedia, the hybrids, you cut after they're done blooming, but long enough that you don't cut them right before dormancy and get a lot of soft growth on them. So our date, our cutoff date in the mid-Atlantic region is, to me, I look at it, Labor Day is a good time to be finished pruning the plant. And the beauty of it is you don't have to be particularly artistic. I think of it as sort of Prince Valiant's head. (laughs) <laughs> if you know what I mean. That ages me, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like a bowl cut. So you just take this this monster plant and you trim it into a round or a, don't, a mushroom shape. So a mature lavender plant every year, certainly for an intermediate, should be trimmed back to maybe 18 inches tall. 24 inches around by Labor Day. Angustifolias, you can trim in the spring and it pushes out all the side shoots and you get a bigger flush of blooms that way. And those are all the English types. Correct. Hidgo Munstead, super blue, big time blue. And there is a possibility I've seen of people cutting lavenders too early or in the, the same time they're doing a chop back of everything in early spring, late winter, mm-hmm. and pruning them too hard. Like yeah. they'll go way back into the woody part of the plant. Yes. And uh, they don't like that. And uh, sometimes sometimes you can lose a plant if you do that. But the other part, and this, this is something that is really a, a, a revelation for the lavender uh, world right now. This winter was very unusual, and it is a nationwide phenomenon that is happening uh, in lavender, where we are hearing reports of a a crown dieback of lavenders almost it doesn't matter what variety it is there's a couple of areas of the country where it did not really happen uh one of them is uh, in the uh squim washington area which of course is just perfection for growing lavender but in the mid-atlantic and the midwest and way up north we had a we had that unbelievable hurricane in the fall, Ida, where we had I mean we had twelve inches of rain here in a half a day. It was it was just extraordinary. And so everything was flooded and then of course that water sat there because it's right when the plants are going dormant. And then we warmed up early this spring, very early, where all of a sudden you got four or five days, about 70 degrees, and then it got really cold. That with the plants were looking fabulous. Then when it got cold, then when it came time, they, they just went downhill. We've been mulling this over. We've been talking with people all over the country about this. And so what we're doing is we're changing our assessment of what zones mean to lavender, what temperatures, what soil means to lavender, 
And what we're determining is it is that rapid cycling of temperatures that's causing this issue. Interesting, because that's definitely, that's our, that's our region, the Mid-Atlantic, is that thaw, you know, freeze, thaw, freeze. So we really get that seesaw back and forth in a normal winter. But you're correct, this last one was particularly harsh, especially that really late uh, freeze we got that zapped a lot of the fruit trees and everything. Exactly. That's exactly the time when it all happened. The original thing that you said right at the beginning of this, that lavender doesn't do well in the mid-Atlantic and you were tying it to a soil issue, I'm saying it's the weather pattern that was the bigger issue because I can tell you that the new lavenders are much more forgiving than the old lavenders are. An interesting little story. And I have a picture of that that, that I've used in, in speeches many, many, many times where people tell you that lavender is finicky and it's not a very tough plant and all that. And I laugh at that. I just think that's the funniest thing ever. This is a picture that I took, um, you know, Inner Harbor of Baltimore Mm -hmm. and the convention center down there. And Baltimore can get pretty hot and miserable. You know, I love Baltimore, but man, in the summertime, it can be pretty hot and humid. And I have a picture from in front of Right on the right on that road, I forget what the name of that street is, uh, where the con- front of the convention center is, going towards Inner Harbor. Uh, they have these huge concrete planters. They got to be 36, 48 inches around. They're enormous. I think that's Pratt Street, P R A T T. So I am walking down the street and I am looking, and there's this monstrous planter there. And lo and behold, there is an enormous lavender phenomenal in there and it's blooming its head off. It's just happy as a clam. And it is in this concrete planter baking in this horrifying sun in essentially planted in a soil that looks like concrete. (laughs) You know, nothing is worse than a old city planter and there are two other plants in there that are so dead as to be unidentifiable but the lavender is happy as a clam and that is not a finicky plant it just wants you to leave it alone you know that's the key (laughs) yes i am a member of the overwaterers club when it comes to house plants especially but it's one plant that, as you said earlier, doesn't want extra fertilizer, doesn't want too much watering. But, you know, once established, it's like all plants, you just can't never water it. It's you, you get it established and then it's pretty good on its own. Right. You don't want it where your lawn irrigation system is sprinkling. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, you don't, you just want it, you want it, you want it where the hose doesn't reach. You know, where you got to fight to water. Our, our stock and trade or our rule of thumb here for the growers, <clears throat> and I, I say the same thing to anybody who buys starter plants from us, is, you know, like, well, how often do I water? I said, okay, here's, here's the rule. When you think you need to water your lavender, I would suggest that you go out and get a six pack of craft beer and walk away from it and enjoy a couple of beers. <laughs> And then consider coming back the next day and taking another look 
because you still have four more beers to go. <laughs> okay. And, and just like, it, it's like, if you look at that plant and you think it will be dead by tomorrow, if I don't water it, that's when you water it. And if you water it, water it thoroughly. Don't wave at it. Water it. Great advice, Lloyd. So let's turn from care and planting tips and move to the fun part of the talk, right? And that's those new lavenders that we've been hinting at. Um, So let's talk about some of the early introductions in the past decade or so and then what's available today awesome it's 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 the lab okay so let me give you a little bit of a backstory here lavender is the hottest perennial plant anywhere right now meaning sales and consumer desire have been increasing by good solid double digit numbers every year for the last decade. It's amazing. So much so that lavender has its own scanning unit at Home Depot now. So in other words, if something is 15% of sales, it gets its own category. So in perennials, it is hostas, lavenders, everything else. Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Right? Mm -hmm. So it is by a landslide, the number one selling perennial plant worldwide. Nothing else is close to it. And there's a reason for that. And that's because it's the only perennial that we think of in the, in the industry as a perennial that is grown in acreage, meaning it's not just homeowners and planting beds, but there are massive acreages of lavender farmers for oil, for cut flowers, for buds, for aroma. There's a lot of great uses for lavender. So you'll have in Bulgaria and Provence and places like that, thousands of acres of of lavender production. They don't do that with hostas or anything else. So that's that's why the number is so huge. That that's the that's a little bit of the background on the. So we've we've done some analysis of it and like, well, why is it increasing so much? And the answer, surprisingly, that I keep hearing, and it's not because it's not because of me saying this; it's other people saying it. It started when we came out with Lavender Phenomenal, okay? And that came out in 2013. That's my company's introduction. What happened was that it was such a quantum change, a truly game-changing lavender that was very easy for commercial growers to grow so that they would grow it. They could harvest all of it. They all went to market. It was uniform, it was predictable, it just survived at retail. And then in the in the environment, in the homeowner's environment, it was hugely successful. Literally the first lavender that could be produced in numbers that the growers loved, the retailers loved, and the consumers loved. And it was the only lavender, and still really is, the only lavender that is asked for 
by name at retail. So consumers will go into retailers and say, do you have lavender phenomenal? Or that phenomenal lavender. So that was a quantum change, huge. Uh, it just exploded on the market. Now it's a lavender intermediate. And by definition, lavender intermediate is sterile, meaning it does not produce any seeds. Okay. So it doesn't spread and you can't, it's hard to breed with because it's sterile. So the breeding companies are literally seeing their sales go away and they say, we got to do something about this. And so they said, what can we do? They can breed lavender and gustafolia, English lavenders, which are extremely fertile, produce seed easily and are easy to cross. So the seed companies and the breeding companies started to breed dramatic improvements in angustifolias. Brilliant breeding, wonderful stuff. So they started replacing Hidcote, Munstead, and the Old Guard with incredible new cultivars like Big Time Blue and Super Blue and, and a number of them. There are now literally hundreds of new lavender and gustafolias out there. It's amazing. And so people, and they were predictable and programmable. They were breeding improvements because they put the effort into it. And so that's, those two things are really driving that whole thing. We were still the only patented lavender intermediate was lavender phenomenal. So we kind of owned that part of the market. And then we came out with, uh, for a hard launch this past season, Lavender Sensational, which is a sport off of Phenomenal. And that's a quantum improvement. Even uh, it's, a very, it's a very different plant than, uh, than Phenomenal. And so we're still the only, now we have the only two patented lavender intermediates in the marketplace and we have a new one on the on the verge of introduction we're starting to do colors now so we're going to have a pure white a pink and all the colors of it soon so the consumers are now successful which is the key for any plant consumers are now successful with lavenders and it and the other part it is, is because growers are now successful with it. And so for the breeding that you're striving for, it's the hardiness, the getting through those, um, we talked about freeze, thaw, freeze, or extremes in temperature that are being predicted to happen more and more as climate change ramps up. So this is one plant that you might want to add to your garden in anticipation of a lot of that coming. Correct. and. But also, Kathy, it's also, we're selecting, it has to be winter hardy. You know, that's a given for us. So, so we're looking for, you know, a hard zone six as a very minimum, but we want a hard zone five is what we're really looking for. So we're doing selections in central Pennsylvania and up in Nova Scotia and Ontario and places like that. And, but we're really looking for heat and humidity tolerance. 
that was going to be my next question, Lloyd, was that to, to me, that's more concern is the increasing heat and then humidity that doesn't go away at night and let the plants cool off. That's it. That's, that's what our selections are known for. So we now have farmers who grow only our varieties down in the Florida panhandle. That is not lavender country. No, that's like the worst dream of lavender. We've got it down in, in Gainesville, in Orlando, in Homestead, Florida, and Tampa, and they bloom. That's that's amazing to us. It should it shouldn't because it's really not cold and uh, but they're thriving in on the Panhandle of uh, Florida. We've got lavender farms now in Georgia and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. These are areas that never had lavender. Even you didn't even plant lavender there. No, unless you had it as a greenhouse or a container plant or or a grocery store plant correct yeah so you mentioned that they need cold to spark that bloom so they do need that cold winter oh certainly intermediates do yeah yes yeah cold a cold a good cold dormancy or a, a chilling period um the rule of thumb is nighttime temperatures but at 45 is kind of the is a kind of a kickoff 50 is okay for nighttime temperatures uh and you need that for six to eight weeks to get to set good bloom great so we'll wind up our lavender talk maybe by talking about a few unusual uses for lavender so I think we're all familiar with it as a scent, you know, in a candle or having the dried buds in a little sachet in a drawer or in soaps and that type of product. And then, of course, there's culinary uses. Um, Are there medicinal and other uses? And I'm hearing people talk about it as a mosquito repellent, but I haven't found that really to be the case myself. Nor have I, and I suspect, Kathy, that like like me, you are probably a mosquito magnet. Oh yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, you know, I should. I'm around enough lavender all the time that I shouldn't be bothered. It's not. The, it's not the ticket. Um, I can tell you some of the more unusual, and, and I tend to. I, I acknowledge the medicinal uses of them, but I'm I'm very careful about making claims on it. And, uh, the, it, you know, technically it's illegal to, use this, to say it's therapeutic. Um, so I want to be really careful just, just for myself to be very careful about making any claims. I will tell you that if you have a really bad headache and you, uh, rub, a, you know, like, like take a washcloth that's warm and put a drop of, uh, lavender oil on it and lay it over your forehead, you will feel much better in my opinion. Um, I think one of the places where they're using lavender that's to me is very exciting. Uh, first of all, in in chocolates, mm. it's delicious in chocolate. A little goes a long way. Um, I will also say that in in adult beverages, um, it is now being made into wonderful. Um, uh, they make a mead with lavender. They make beers with lavender. You can infuse it in uh, vodka and things like that. Ciders, 
uh, like fruit ciders with a little bit of lavender in it. Really, really, really good, good stuff. Um, it can certainly be overdone. I was going to say at restraint for sure that, you know, especially if you're making, you know, lavender cookies and following a recipe and you're not using the same kind of lavender, which can be a totally different oil content than the one called for in the recipe, uh, you can really overdo it quickly. Yes. But chemically, it's a very interesting plant. Um, and so the different, la each lavender has a very distinctive chemical profile. And uh, so they are able to use the lavenders and extract some very specific compounds out of them that I do think they are going to identify some very strongly advantageous medical treatments out of. Um, and like they've done the same thing with taxes and all. I mean, plants are plants are the where most of the um, medications come from originally. You know, uh, uh, blood pressure statins come from a red rice originally. And uh, so all of the all of the, you know, the cholesterol drugs are based off of that somehow. And so they're they're going to find some really interesting uses for some very, very specific compounds in that profile of different lavenders. Yeah, we'll definitely be looking out for some more of that fascinating uses and interesting um, applications for lavender. And meanwhile, I think people, it's just got this great sensory memory component to it from either a childhood memory of being around lavender or just an association um, culturally with lavender that people have. So there's always those emotional ties that way. No question about it. it anything that reminds you of your grandmother it is an absolute home run as far as I'm concerned. Well, thank you so much, Lloyd, for sharing all this wonderful wisdom and some of the what's going to be coming down the pike in lavender breeding. I'm excited to hear about like a white version of Phenomenal. That will be so beautiful and maybe even a pink one. And for our listeners, is there a way they can contact you or find out more about Peacetree Farm? So the we of course, we have a website, uh, www.peacetreefarm.com. Dot com um, and uh, to reach out for any information info at peacetreefarm.com is the best way we have an active instagram we have an active facebook page um, and so we are we're always posting things um, a reminder again that we are a wholesale company and we're not really set up uh, for general telephone call questions and things like that. Um, but uh, we are responsive. And you, you can find um, where we ship our plants to all over. You guys are lucky in the Mid-Atlantic and, uh, and the DC metro area that uh, there's a lot of really good perennial growers in that area, of course. And there's, there's plenty of uh, really good support and backup and uh, availability in that area as well. Yeah, we're definitely blessed in this aspect of things. 
So thanks again, Lloyd. And any final thoughts on lavender for our listeners? I I'm I just say, you know, enjoy the smell. Give it a chance. Give it a give it a try because it's one of those plants that you don't have to fuss with all the time. It is not it is not a rose bush. And uh, you know, so it it's it belongs it belongs in both the front yard and the backyard. It's a worthy plant. Thank you, Lloyd. A pleasure. Stewardia plant profile. Stewardia is a small tree that is known for its ornamental flower buds its camellia-like white flowers, its fall color, interesting seed pods, and attractive exfoliating bark in winter. It's called the summer dogwood in the southern United States due to its late spring into early summer blooming period. There are both Asian and native kinds of stewardia. In fact, there are two native species and 12 recognized Asian ones, some with branches that zigzag, some shrubby, and two species have fragrant flowers. Silky stewardia, stewardia malacandendron, and mountain stewardia, stewardia oveda, have purple anthers with blue stamen. The Asian species have golden yellow centers. The plant most available in nurseries is the Japanese stewardia, stewardia pseudocamellia. Stewardia requires consistent watering during its first year, Pick its location in your garden carefully as transplanting has a low survival rate. Stewardia does like well-drained organic soil and a sheltered spot with protection from the afternoon sun and the north wind. It does not like wet feet. In understory woodland habitat tree, it will survive under similar conditions in your garden. Pruning is not required. Allow it to develop its natural structure and shape. Pruning only to remove dead, broken, or crossing branches, or to remove a water spout. Stewardia is known to be pest-free as well as non-aggressive. It grows to about 30 feet tall and is highly recommended for small space gardens. Stewardia, you can grow that. new this week in the garden? Well, the summer heat has moved in and we took a quick trip up to the Philadelphia Flower Show. We'll be sharing photos from that trip on our Facebook page, Washington Gardener Magazine. In our home garden, the hydrangeas are looking spectacular and I'm cutting tons of blooms for those for indoor bouquets. The Asiatic lilies are also blooming up a storm. Over at the community garden plot, we've gotten our tomatoes and pepper in, and now our cutting garden seeds are, are placed in rows, and uh, we already have self-sown zinnias that I am cutting from as well. And the big news there is our dwarf thornless blackberry bushes are abundant with fruit and I've already picked a quart one day and plan to go back and pick another quart today. 
In the local gardening world, it's Pollinator Week from June 20th to 26th, and you can check out local events and tips for pollinator gardening at pollinator.org. Also, a fun event that you and your friends might want to take part in is the Summer Garden Tour and Tea to Go at Green Spring Gardens in Annandale, Virginia. And those take place on Thursdays at 1 to 2 p.m. This is an adult program, not for kids. And it's June 17th, July 15th, and August 19th. You tour the vibrant demonstration gardens with a master gardener docent who will inspire you with dazzling plant combination and tales of green springs past and present. And then you have the option of ordering a tea box to go. You can register for that online at fairfaxcounty.gov slash parks slash park takes. And Washington Gardener is coming out with its June issue this week. So if you're a subscriber, look for that in your email inbox in the next few days. The Garden DC podcast is going on a couple week summer break. And that gives some of our newer listeners a chance to catch up on some of our older episodes. And two I recommend um, that are perfect for summer break timing are episode 23, where we talk about summer cocktails. Marianne Wilburn gives a defense of the lawn. And we also have tips for growing cucumbers in that one. And then episode 68, Doug Oster shares his tips and wisdom for growing summer vegetables. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen, Terry Spite, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space, while also making Making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City, comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to Washington Gardener 
www.thepeacefulpeoplesocialcommunitychurch.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.